through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings and welcome to the 37th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, May 2nd, 2019. I'm Robin Long. This month's edition focuses on the state of women's sports as we move forward in time, seeing more and more trans-identified males entering competitions, teams, and applying for sports scholarships as the concept of gender identity continues to gain traction in society. We'll hear excerpts of an interview I did with Linda Blade, a track and field coach, and Beth Seltzer, founder of the new organization Save Women's Sports. You'll also hear Thistle's compelling commentary about the sanctity and beauty of women's sports and how female bonding on an all-women's team can and should be appreciated and encouraged in society. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, here's WLRN's Jenna DiQuarto with the news. Irish journalist Lear McKee recently murdered in Derry, Ireland, was laid to rest in Belfast on April 24th. Hundreds were in attendance at her funeral, both inside the church and gathered outside as well. On Tuesday night, her family issued a statement regarding her death. Quote, On Thursday, April 18th, our beautiful Lyra was taken from us. A daughter, a sister, an aunt, a great aunt, a partner, a niece, a cousin, and above all, a best friend and confidant to so many of us. End quote. Some attendees of note at her services were Irish President Michael D. Higgins and Premier Leo Varadkar and British Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn and Prime Minister Theresa May, the last of whom spoke with the late McKee's mother Joan and her partner Sarah. McKee died of a gunshot wound sustained while observing political rioting, by then on its fourth night. On April 18th, police raided nationalist areas connected with new IRA activity, hoping to seize firearms, ammunition and explosives. Rioting broke out on the Cregan estate and quickly escalated. Shots were fired and McKee was struck by a stray bullet. The new IRA who have claimed responsibility for the murder is described as a, quote, dissident Irish Republican paramilitary group, end quote. Their tactics have become increasingly violent in recent years. Along with apologizing via a letter sent to the Irish News on April 22nd, they made a point of laying some of the blame for her death on the police themselves, accusing them of triggering new IRA response. Quote, the IRA offer our full and sincere apologies to the partner, family, and friends of Lyra McKee for her death. On Thursday night, following an incursion on the Cregan by heavily armed British Crown forces, which provoked rioting, the IRA deployed our volunteers to engage. End quote. 
For the record, there were no British Crown forces in Cregan that night. They were Irish police. So far, police have arrested three people in connection with McKee's murder. However, all have been released unconditionally. The family of the slain journalist hope, quote, that Lyra's life and her personal philosophy are used as an example to us all as we face this tragedy together. Lyra's answer would have been simple. The only way to overcome hatred and intolerance is with love, understanding, and kindness, end quote. Several senior members of the Scottish National Party have signed a public letter urging the government to consider more carefully proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act that would allow people to self-identify their biological sex. Current law in Scotland requires certain benchmarks in order to legally change one's sex. The person must be 18, they must be diagnosed with gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder, they must have already been living as their quote, acquired gender for at least two years, and lastly, they must testify that they intend to live as their quote, acquired gender for the remainder of their life. In November of last year, the Scottish government conducted a public consultation that included nearly 15,700 people, 49% of whom were Scottish residents, in which 60% of the respondents, quote, agreed with the proposal to introduce a self-declaratory system for legal gender recognition, end quote. Of those opposed, the argument was made that such a change would erode women's rights and protections. As Scotland quickly moves towards a self-ID model, 15 SNP politicians have spoken out via a public letter published in The Scotsman on April 24th. Quote, It is important that all parliamentarians and the wider public can discuss questions of law, policy, and practice in relation to definitions of sex and gender in good faith and without being subject to abuse of any kind. It has become clear that many people, including policymakers, are only now developing an understanding of the implications of the self-identification of sex, particularly on women. Conflating sex with gender identification affects a wide range of policy and service delivery, including data collection, education, health and social care, justice, and sport. We should now have that debate without accusations of intolerance. We respect and uphold everyone's human rights, particularly the most vulnerable people in our communities. Changing the definition of male and female is a matter of profound significance. It is not something we should rush." End quote. The letter comes a week after Equality Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville, in an attempt to mediate what can mildly be described as a hot-button issue, made a statement in the Scottish magazine Holyrood saying, quote, I have no hesitation in calling myself a trans ally, and I hope trans women and men see me that way too. But I am also a woman and a lifelong passionate feminist, and I know that while the battle for women's rights and equality has made great strides in recent years, there is still much more to do, end quote. Referring to SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon's recent statements at the UN this past February, Secretary Somerville said, quote, Just as the First Minister has herself said in the past, I personally don't feel conflict between my support for trans rights and my support for women's rights. But I know that some do feel that conflict, and that the issues they are raising are not motivated by transphobia, but by a concern sincerely felt that space hard won by women down the generations will be compromised. The problem is one of how we protect and safeguard guard women against potentially abusive men, end quote. Despite knowing that there is, quote, still much more to do, end quote, in the struggle for women's equality, Secretary Somerville closed her statement with the hope that, quote, whatever views any of us may hold on the relationship between trans rights and women's rights, we will all unite against transphobia, just as we do against homophobia and any other form of prejudice and discrimination, end quote. It is unclear whether or not Secretary Somerville considers misogyny a form of discrimination. 
Since the letter in the Scotsman was published, four members of the Scottish Parliament have published a response, saying the letter had been, quote, received with concern by stakeholders in the LGBTI community, and that has the potential to undermine their confidence in the wider work of our committee. We would suggest such language is misleading, given that proposals for reform of gender recognition legislation do not propose to change the meaning of the terms male or female, end quote. In plain terms, this isn't untrue. Except that, if you allow those of one sex to legally identify as the opposite sex, what implications does that have for the meaning of words? The all-women editorial board of the Vatican magazine Women Church World has unanimously resigned from the publication, citing an increase in editorial interference. In December, Andrea Monda was appointed as new editor of the Vatican newspaper L'Osservatore Romano, which features Women Church World as a monthly supplement. The resigned editors contend that since that time, chief editor Monda has not been supportive of the publication's ethos, that there has been a, quote, climate of distrust and progressive delegitimization, end quote, and that editorial interference was an attempt to bring women church world, quote, under the direct control of men, end quote. In February, magazine founder Lucetta Scarafina published an op-ed openly referencing the history of scandal involving rapist priests and the fallout of their actions. The piece was titled, Without Any Touching, and it begins by talking about touch, how important it is, and how the loss of touch between priests and parishioners is a, quote, real mutilation of relational life and of the apostolate in the Christian community, end quote. The piece goes on to recount, quote, Towards the end of the 1990s, two religious, Sister Maura O'Donohue and Sister Marie McDonald, had the courage to present precise and substantiated reports, in-depth investigations, and analyses of the situations most exposed to this type of bullying arrogance. Their denunciations were met with silence, and it is well known that silence de facto contributes to giving security to rapists, who become ever surer of their own impunity. During the past year, many women religious have begun to speak out and make denunciations. They know that to bring about this transformation, it is not enough to appoint a few women to serve on commissions. If eyes continue to be closed to this scandal, rendered even more serious by the fact that the abuse of women entails procreation and is thus at the root of the scandal of imposed abortions and of the children not recognized by priests, the condition of oppression of women in the church will never change." End quote. Four days after the piece was published, Pope Francis was questioned on it while en route back to Rome from the UAE and forced, for the first time in the history of the Vatican, to publicly acknowledge this known history of abuse against nuns. The resignation of all 11 members of Women Church World's editorial board was published in an open letter in April's edition, along with another op-ed from Scarafina, stating that the new Los Sovatore Romano editor, Monda, wanted to bring in, quote, collaborators who guarantee obedience and who renounce every possibility of opening up a true, free, and courageous dialogue. It is a return to clerical self-referentiality and renounces the paraphysia, a Greek term for speaking without fear, so often called for by Pope Francis. Consequently, we can only declare our work concluded, interrupted abruptly, even though there are still ongoing projects, end quote. Filmmaker Nina Paley, an artist and intellectual who has been blacklisted due to defaming attacks by trans activists, has booked the historic Virginia Theater in downtown Champaign, Illinois, to screen her new film, Cedar Masochism, on Wednesday, May 8th. WLRN's Thistle Patterson called her up on the phone and captured this short interview to learn more about what to expect at this screening. So can you tell us how it came about that you were able to secure this showing of your film? 
Yeah, well, um, I'm working with an uh, anti-war activist named Robert Neiman of Just Foreign Policy, and he originally approached the art theater in Champaign, but they uh, blacklisted me, and then we were looking, you know, there's only one other theater in downtown Champaign, that's the Virginia, and it's a much larger, much higher profile theater. It holds almost 1,500 people, and it hosts large acts. Uh, so it costs more, but um, we decided to go for it. We decided to spend the money and go for it. They are owned and operated by the Champaign County Park District, so they are run by the government, basically, and that means they have to protect the First Amendment, so they cannot arbitrarily censor me. And I understand so far that the people who work for the theater support you, they're fans of yours, but that there's also been some trans activists response to you booking this theater yeah the response is just starting it's inevitable i mean i i posted about it online yesterday and by the end of the day there was someone complaining to the virginia on twitter and i expect that will grow do you think that trans activists will actually show up to the theater it is entirely possible they will show up but the theater is not going to shut me down i mean what what the activists do is they try to intimidate the venues so that the venues shut you down before, you know, anything worse can happen. Uh, but the Virginia is, you know, it's run by the government. Like, they can't uh, cave to that. Right, and there's going to be added security that night, right? Yes, I believe so. My understanding is that the theater has dealt with problems like this in the past and that they feel confident being able to host your film, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is like a major venue and uh, they're very experienced with security and sort of all possible uh, scenarios, all possible scenarios. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. So um, what when is the showing happening and how much does it cost to get in? The screening is May 8th at 7 p.m. That's a Wednesday, May 8th. The doors open at 6 p.m. I think we're going to have some sort of VIP thing at 5 p.m. Uh, for donors to the GoFundMe. Um, the cost of admission is free. It is absolutely free, free and open to the public. And we want to get as many people in there as we can. And if women want to donate to the GoFundMe, how do they do that? Probably the easiest way is to go to ninapaley.com. I've been blogging about it and there are links to it. Okay, great. Well, let's get lots of women from the Midwest out to see your film Wednesday, May 8th. Yes, and plus we'll get to meet each other and talk to each other, which is always so great. Thanks to everyone who has signed the petition and sent letters to the Wilmar Neighborhood Center in Madison to stand up for democracy and stop the blacklisting of feminist Thistle Patterson. If you have yet to sign the petition, donate, or send a letter, please visit defendfeminists.net and have a look around at what this committee is doing to stand up for free speech and women's rights. So far, Thistle is still banned from performing at the Wilmar Neighborhood Center due to accusations of, quote, hatred, bigotry, and discrimination, end quote coming from Wilmar staff, Beatrice Hadidian. No evidence for this accusation has been presented, and no invitation to speak in person with the board of directors has been extended, even though Thistle requested being able to talk about it at their April board meeting. The board of directors president, Bob Hemauer, sent a letter to Thistle on April 15th, stating that the board unanimously supports Ms. Hadidian's interpretation of their policies, so the ban remains. 
With enough pressure from Letter's signature and noise from Thistle supporters, we can get the ban lifted and stop the harassment she has endured for years in Madison by trans activists and Madison institutions that have buckled under their pressure. To learn more and to support the campaign, please visit defendfeminists.net. A UN-backed resolution regarding rape and conflict has passed absent addressing any issues of reproductive health, thanks to ardent opposition from the Trump administration. The resolution, put forth by Germany in April, was originally a more robust document, calling for a working group to actively work toward ending sexual violence and conflict, and addressing not only victims of sexual violence and conflict and their reproductive health, but also LGBT victims, as it is understood those persons can be specific targets of sexual violence. The final document included none of these points. U.S. allies backing the resolution expressed frustration with the Trump administration's veto threat and the ultimate dilution of the resolution. Quote, We are dismayed by the fact that one state has demanded the removal of the reference to sexual and reproductive health, going against 25 years of gains for women's rights in situations of armed conflict, said Francois Delatre, French permanent representative to the U.N. In March, 10 German NGOs published a statement urging Germany to abandon issuing the resolution at all, concerned that it would unintentionally weaken previous resolutions. Quote, given the further hardening of anti-democratic and decidedly misogynistic stances in the UN Security Council, we believe there is a danger of a weak resolution text ultimately being negotiated and adopted. Some powerful members of the Security Council, such as Russia, China, and the USA, are undermining women's rights and once again questioning, for example, women's and girls' right to self-determination. Through such actions, the achievements that have already been made could be shattered and the women, peace, and security agenda overall decisively weakened." End quote. The resolution does call for the further support of children born of rape and their mothers, which is a first in this ninth resolution on women, peace, and security since 2000. Notably, China and Russia abstained from voting. A hearing in the trial of detained women's rights activists in Saudi Arabia has been postponed by the judge with little explanation. The women have been imprisoned for a year, the first six months of which charges weren't even disclosed. The brother of one of the activists, Lujain al-Hathrul, has spoken out against their obscure imprisonment and reprehensible treatment, saying that his sister was taken to a covert detention center and tortured under the supervision of Saud al-Qatani, a close associate of the Saudi crown prince. Ultimately, al-Hathlul and the other activists were accused of spying, which is yet to be substantiated, and for, quote, applying for a job at the UN and being in contact with human rights organizations, end quote. Saudi officials deny any wrongdoing in the activists' detainment and treatment, but back in February, a group of British members of parliament, supported by a number of international human rights organizations, investigated al-Hathlul's allegations of mistreatment and concluded that they were credible. Following that investigation, the UN's Human Rights Council called for the activists' release, and more than 30 countries signed a statement condemning their prolonged detention. At the end of March, three of the activists were temporarily released on bail. Ten still remain in custody, Al-Hathlul included. Currently, the activists and their families are waiting for the judge to respond to their defenses, submitted on March 27th. A new documentary film focused on prostitution court in Queens, New York, opened in select theaters last month. Blowing Up, from director Stephanie Wang-Briel, is named after a term referring to a prostituted woman escaping her pimp. 
The film documents this court's approach to convicting and sentencing women arrested on prostitution charges, mainly seeing the arrest as an opportunity to rehabilitate women out of prostitution. The all-female court is led by New York State Acting Supreme Court Justice Judge Toko Sarita, who explains, We have been very, very successful in that we have seen 6,000 women uh, over the course of uh, these years, and we have been able to provide services for them. All of the arrests in Queens County uh, that involve prostitution or loitering are sent to my court. It operates as an alternative to incarceration uh, type program. We take into account the fact that many of the individuals are in fact victimized in some way uh, by the commercial sex industry. For screening information, visit blowinguppfilm.com. WLRN just learned that Thistle Pedersen will be appearing on the news program On Contact with host Chris Hedges later this month to discuss the defamation and harassment she's faced in Madison. Learn more under the Updates tab of the DefendFeminists.net website, and please consider a donation to help cover Thistle's travel expenses to and from New York City. Know someone in New York City? Help spread the word. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, May 2nd, 2019. Share your news stories and tips with us by emailing wlrnewscontact at gmail.com and letting us know what's going on in your world. it on my locker and I carved it on my desk and I painted big red hearts with her initials on my books and I never knew till later why I got those funny books she was a big type of woman the first to come along that showed me being female but just still could be strong and oh graduation meant that we had to part others talked of boys that they loved I'd be thinking of new aches and pains a teacher had to rub and while other girls went to the prom I languished by the phone calling up and hanging up if I found out she was home she was a big time woman And some daisies in the spring Some suggestive points for Christmas by Miss Edna Malay And the lace 
unsigned, of course. <laughs> she was a big time woman. was Ode to a Gym Teacher by Meg Christian. Now we turn to a Skype interview Robin Long did with Coach Linda Blade and founder of Save Women Sports, Beth Stelzer. Dr. Linda Blade lives and works in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada as a sport performance professional and track and field coach, currently serving as president of the board at Athletics Alberta, the Provincial Track and Field Association. Beth Stelzer is a small-town mom and housewife. She's a health coach, amateur powerlifter, unscripted activist, and founder of Save Women's Sports. Here now are excerpts of their interview with WLRN's Robin Long. I wanted to get started um, with Linda. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your history in sports. Uh, What sport do you coach? Yeah, well, uh, my history is steeped in track and field athletics I was the longtime combined events athlete women men do decathlon women do heptathlon and I'm sure most of you listeners might remember if they're old enough um Jackie Joyner Kersey um from the U.S. and there's been many others great athletes and actually during the 80s when I was in at the University of Maryland on a full athletic scholarship thanks to Title IX um I did do the heptathlon and competed with some of those great athletes and it was great. And then I came back to Canada and I was a Canadian champion and I, I competed internationally for a while. Uh, then got my PhD in, in uh, kinesiology, sports sciences. So then I kind of transitioned into coaching, like basically delivering the many track and field foundational skills, speed, power, explosiveness, jumping higher increasing people's vertical and stuff. So I, I, I've worked with athletes in about 17 different sports and uh, just sort of whatever they need. So if it's a hockey player and they need to run faster or they may need to move faster on the ice, we get them off the ice, we run fast. Um, it's just pretty much developing uh, athletes' athleticism in mm-hmm. athletes in different sports. And like with figure skaters, they always want to jump higher. So, you know, that's track and field training, but... We just take them off the ice and they do that. So that's been my business, private consulting business for 30 years now. Wow. And, and Beth, how about you? Tell us a little bit about your background as an athlete. My passion for sports came a little later in life, um, almost an early midlife crisis. I 
realized the importance of physical health on my mental health and started with goals like running a 5k and started to go to classes like CrossFit and kickboxing. And that's where I learned to unleash my beast with the barbell and mm -hmm. fell in love with powerlifting. And now I can lift over 300 pounds off the ground. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Well, I wanted to ask you both, and, and you can decide who answers first, but um, how have trans-inclusive policies and culture impacted your careers in sports? Beth needs to go first because she's the one who has actually experienced it as an athlete. I'm too mm -hmm. old for it to have, uh, you know, impacted me as an athlete. Sure. Um. I have been power training, power lifting and training for it for a couple of years before I had the nerve to um, enter into a sanctioned meet. And when I finally did, it was protested by gender rights activists because men were not allowed to compete as women. And so that's kind of what prompted me to be where I am today. Wow. And th this is the protest we've heard about where they, they basically took took over kind of with signs and things were you I, able to continue to compete we weren't able to compete but it was not a friendly or sportsmanlike environment mm. there was ruckus chanting and clapping that carried on all through the event did that really affect your performance it affected a lot of people's performance and it certainly was not the event that we were expecting to have Mm -hmm. And with powerlifting, you train very hard for just a few events a year. So it was really disheartening. I can't just go to the next game the next day. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so frustrating. Well, and I, Beth, if you can let me step in, are, um, is it my, is my understanding correct that some of the female athletes didn't even show up because they just got discouraged and scared? Yeah, like. 120 people already originally signed up for this. And after seeing rumors of protests on social media, when I got there, there was only 82 women that were competing and 14 of those women chose to protest. Wow. Yeah, this um, is interesting. Pretty mm -hmm. Can I the, with the popularity of our sport for people to even drop out is pretty unheard of. So to have that low of an attendance rate was pretty sad. Sure, you've all been intensively training for months and months and months for this event, and right. it just kind of blew it all up, didn't it? Yeah, it, it kind of took a lot of people's glory away just for one person to make a point. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and do you think that uh, the league is going to become inclusive of, of trans athletes? And how do you think that'll affect it? You know, that's that's not really for me to say. Um, the president has made comments recently that they are going to stand firm with their policy. So I, I believe that they will not allow men who identify as women to lift with women, whether they let them into the men's category or create an open category. I mean, that's always open to them. Mm -hmm. But I'm firm that they will preserve women's rights to fair sports. Oh, that's great. Well, mm -hmm. Linda, you're an, an expert on, on uh, you know, the, the whole physiology of sport. Yeah. How is this fair to women? I mean. Well, you know what? The fact is, is it's antithetical. This inclusion of male bodies in female sport is absolutely antithetical to anything you've ever learned in, in biology. And you know, I'm a human biologist fundamentally. Um, 
And it just took me by storm, I guess, in 2018. I was so shocked when I was sitting at national meetings. One of my role, at, one of my roles in track and field, other than being a coach, is is I'm currently serving as president of Athletics Alberta, as you mentioned in the intro, which is actually the association for track and field on the ground here in this province of Canada, which is similar to you know the states, a state in the United States. Uh, and so we have our, our national meetings where the presidents from each of, of the provinces get together with the national sport governing bodies. And this was presented to us officially in 2018 as the strong recommendation from the bureaucracy, from the central government of Canada, that we should be, they always use the word inclusive. But the thing is, we all want you know, to be fair and inclusive for sure in society. And I have, I would be the first one to fight for anybody's right to express any way they want when it comes to sport. Um, inclusive, if you're including a male body with all the advantages that men grow up to have over women in terms of physical advantages, you're literally working to exclude women. So they, you know, the word inclusive just really bothers me in this context of sport because you're really going to end up having women excluded, just like what happened in Beth's competition, where even before they show up, even before they get beat by a guy, um, they wouldn't even want to try because they know that the deck is stacked, right? And so it just effectively, it just it turns the tables on what sport is about and the meaning of a mm -hmm. win um and so yeah i mean i just i will just say that i i it really shocked me last year and it's taken me a year literally a year to do a deep dive on what has happened i had no idea this was a thing i had no idea that it was even olympic it was a rule in the olympic games now a new policy allowing this to happen and and um, so the whole thing, it just sort of blew my mind, literally, like I'm bewildered. I was bewildered for about six months and then really, really going after the information for the final six months to this point. Well, sure. A lot of the people in the trans community, well, they, they claim that trans women have no physical advantage over women in sporting events. And, and they would claim that you're, you, you know, that having an objection is transphobic. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you respond to that? How do you, uh, and this is for both of you, how would you address that? Beth, do you want to take that first or should I do it? I can take it. Um, I think that transphobia is, is basically a made up term to just scare women out of defending their rights. I don't think that defending biology is deserving of such a label. I mean, this transphobia is, this whole transgenderism is, is almost like an agreed upon lie in our media and politics. I don't mm -hmm. feel like there's much to defend. It's biology. Mm -hmm. And then we have scientists stating things like in a recent article on NBC News that there's no simple or even complex biological test that you can apply that tells you who's a man and who's a woman. Are we <laughs> serious here? <laughs> yeah. Every pregnant woman can get a test that shows you that, yeah. <laughs> what sex the baby is. I mean, it's unbelievable the lies that are being sort of bandied about in the interest of somebody trying to 
you know, tip the scales in favor of a really tiny minority of people. If you think about how few people there have been, maybe it's going to be more in the future because a lot of children are, are you know, transitioning. But like until now, there really haven't been that many um, transgender or people who identify as transgender in sport. And, you know, it really does actually make me wonder whether some of them, and I'm not saying all, because I think everybody has their own unique uh, path through life and everybody has their own unique motivations for what they do. But I actually have got one. I see these people who win a, win a woman's competition in, with a male's, male body um, and then they're preening about on social media and, and, you know, bragging about it. Like part of it to me just seems like there's a, there's sort of different motivations here. Like maybe that's just somebody wants attention. Like I, I don't, you know, some of them I might be true, you know, with, truly have dysphoria. But there's a lot of speculation lately that there's a lot of others that are just, it's just a fetish and they're just going after the next sort of boost in terms mm-hmm. of their image. And I well, worry you, about that. Yeah, you also have situations where, you know, 45-year-old men, male-bodied people are competing mm-hmm. against 20-year-old women who've been training their hearts mm-hmm. out and the right. 44-year-old wins. How does, right. how does that make sense? Um, it well, doesn't. Tell us a little bit about um, how Title IX is being used to allow men to compete as women. Beth, you should take that being the American in the group here, the strong American. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Title IX was started in the 70s, as we all know, to cement our rights to even have... I wasn't a... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Linda. I I I just want to insert that I'm a beneficiary of it because, thank goodness... For Title IX, I got my university education, and I had a wonderful experience competing in the U.S., and it really made a difference in my life, I can say. And, I, you know, it's just, it just heartbreaking for me to see that maybe there's this other sector of society that has commandeered that Title IX idea to benefit men again. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, Beth. I basically believe that they're using Title IX and their clever wordplay to add gender identity into it, just like they are with the Equality Act with sex. So then they can abuse it. And we fought hard for these spots from men and boys. And now we're having men and boys threatening to take those spots away from us. And we're not just talking about um, spots on a team. We're talking about scholarships and sponsorships and things like that as well, aren't we? Right. This goes deep. It's not only the athletes and their sponsors that are at risk. This is just everyday people are afraid to Mm -hmm. to speak up because of what the media is showing them. They're being villainized for defending women's rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's going to go deep into American law because um, Beth and I were talking about this the other day. I, I don't know if you've seen the movie On the Basis of Sex with Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, or the story about Ruth, uh, the t- justice of the Supreme Court. But back in the 70s, when they, you know, when they run, won the, the right and the, the, um, the uh, recognition of, of sex and equal rights for women, the secretary in that movie was the one that proposed the word gender to soften the word sex. 
Mm-hmm. So they literally meant biological sex, but they used the word gender. And probably in some of the laws, gen- the word gender is buried in there uh, as a replacement for the term for biological sex. And it was used sort of as the same meaning the same thing. But now that makes it so easy for somebody to come along and say, yeah, well, just instead of gender, just say gender identity. And all of a sudden the whole thing changes. Right. Like the whole meaning of it changes. And I was saying to Beth yesterday, like, man, I really we would it would be really good for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to actually put out a statement of what was the true meaning of the word gender back when they used it in law in the 70s. -hmm. Because you can't just sort of change it from meaning biological sex to just anything you imagine yourself to be. True. So, I mean, yeah. when I see women um, trying to do uh, team contact sports like roller derby and you see a, a six and a half foot, 250 pound guy mm-hmm. um, competing with them, it, it's just, it's disheartening. Yeah, well, and for me, as, um, and you asked about the impact, mm-hmm. so Beth shared the impact in terms of being an athlete and, and having to deal with people shouting and putting flags out there and demonstrating while you're trying to just focus on your performance. But my concern, because I'm president of a, of a sport uh, in a certain province and uh, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for my, my board and I are responsible to make sure the sport happens fairly on the ground. My concern is actually threefold. Firstly, um, and our policies have to be carefully vetted to make sure that you're not going to get, you know, there's going to be boys racing girls. Are we going to enable that, allow that, uh, or what are we going to do about that? Um, and then if we do allow male bodies to go into female events, then there's nothing then to stop the male bodies going into the women's washroom or the bathroom because we let them, we already acknowledge them in the race. So then they'll, those guys go then into the bathroom and the locker room. So now the girls aren't safe in the locker room. So that's kind of the second area. But then think about it. If, if, if young male athletes are in a female locker room, what's then to stop anybody as a spectator or any of the, any of the people surrounding that competition who are just hanging around to go also into that space. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Because once you let that start happening, anybody can do it. And then finally, in in the context of Canada and Canadian law, um, we open up our officials to possible hate speech. If they, if they see an anomaly in a race and think, well, I don't know whether that person's the right age or sex to be in this race. And if they ask the question, they might open themselves up to hate speech um, allegations. So we have our whole sport is run by volunteer officials. And a lot of these officials are retired people and a lot of retired female um, officials. And if if anybody thinks that by simply doing their job, they're going to be you know accused of hate. Um, it won't be very long before many of our officials will be too bashful. And and just like the athletes that didn't show up to Beth's event, then we would have officials who don't show up to our competitions. 
And that's not just going to hurt the girls. It's going to hurt everybody. It's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. It's going to make sure like there, we could have a real challenge on our hands, just hosting competitions for the grassroots sports for the little kids. And so once we can't host the competitions anymore because officials are too confused or afraid to deal with this issue, um, we don't have, we're not really then creating any kind of, you know, preparation for high performance sport. There won't be any athletes being developed actually. Mm -hmm. And, and so really we could say initially the first stage is it would kill women's sport, but the long term would be, it just kills sport in general. Mm-hmm. because it does it does affect everybody so i, I would say the long-term implications and, and really sort of the deep deep functioning of the sport in terms of the bureaucracy of sport it, it really threatens everything mm-hmm. right and not just not just the female athletes sure well beth um all of this has really impacted you, and you took your experience and and channeled it into starting an organization called Save Women's Sports. How did it get started, and, and what are your goals? Basically, around the time that I had this happen to me, there I didn't find many resources that highlighted my values and made me feel safe, so I started my own, and it, the organization just started as a website to compile videos and articles and now we've grown to a team just trying to hold on to what we have. And with the Equality Act looming overhead here in the United States and transgender participation on the rise, I realized the importance of speaking up. And thankfully, we have people like Martina Navratilova and Sharon Davies and Paula Radcliffe that are kind of opening up a space for me to feel comfortable to speak. Mm-hmm. Have you had a lot of backlash? Oh, of course. It's it's a it's a daily occurrence, and and sometimes it's scary. It's it's you know saddening to to get death threats over over such a simple thing as fighting for the, the difference of men and women. And yeah. we get we get general labels like turf and transphobe, and but when it gets to calling us racist over this, that's where I just quit understanding. <laughs> wow. How can I be racist? That's what I would like to know, but they really like to feel like their movement is very similar to that of segregation. Wow. Well, Beth, um, if people want to get involved in in, uh, Save Women's Sports, where would they go to find out more information or to, to join your organization? I would love for them to hop on to SaveWomenSports.com. You can read about the men that have recently invaded women's sports and catch up on the latest articles and videos and can even share your story, send us tips or donate to our movement. We're on all social media. Look us up and join our team. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, we're all aware that the, we have Olympics coming up and they've changed the rules about who can compete in women's sports. Mm-hmm. Um are you expecting some major upsets as far as, as uh, women being shut out of medals? Well, let me, let me uh, dive in on this one because um, I have been watching carefully um, since I was, you know, um, made aware of the transgender issue. And um, I sort of went back and looked it up. And around 2003, 2004, um, they, the IOC did 
have a ruling about transsexuals. So like people that had the surgery and then um, if they would self ID, what, but they would have to prove that they had the surgery and that they had been on, on hormonal treatment for a few years and that sort of thing. So there was a really, really strict um, um, sort of brackets put around that. And, and of course, very few, there might've been a couple involved that nobody knew about. They were so well integrated and maybe we just never were aware that, that though there were a couple of transgenders in the women's events in there in the two thousands. But, um, then in 2013, the, they dispensed with the need for surgery, surgical conversion or trans transition. And all they did, said was you self ID and you have to be, um, declare yourself to be a woman. If you're a man wanting to compete in the, in a, a woman's event or a male athlete, wanting to compete with the women, then you would self-declare and then you'd have to be on hormonal treatment and reduce the testosterone for a year only. And um, that's the one that has made it a lot easier. Let's face it, you got literally less skin in the game if you don't have to go undergo surgery. And all you have to do is to self-declare and then have some hormonal and hormonal treatment. But the fact is, is that the hormone levels required aren't even as, as restrictive as with women for doping. Right. So, so, um, and then the other thing is we all know the truth that if a man male body has reduced testosterone, that doesn't change the fact that your heart, that their heart grew to be bigger through puberty, their lungs capacity is greater their, their blood supply, like everything is different in that body. It's a different body. So just because you happen to be on hormones for a year does not erase the advantage you have. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to believe that the international Olympic committee, IOC would have agreed to let that rule be changed in that way. And a lot of the transgender people who are really promoting it and they're activists, Say, well, if it's as bad as we are saying, why weren't there more guys in, like, male bodies in the female events in Rio de Janeiro in 2016? Because of, you know, the rule changed in 2000, 2000 actually it was 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then they, they couldn't because the, one of the requirements was you had to be in that status for a year. Mm-hmm. So, there were there wasn't enough time for transgender people to qualify for the past the Olympics in Rio, but they have had the time to do it in for 2020. So, so the thing is, if nothing happens to that rule, um, then you probably very well will see male bodies and female events in Tokyo 2020. But what we're all waiting for is the IOC to give that final sort of statement that they're going to stick to their policy or whether they're going to suspend the policy. And we have only a few months to get their attention to say, you haven't consulted with the women, you haven't done enough research, you should suspend your policy because Mm -hmm. it's going to be a disaster not only for women in sport, but it's going to be a disaster for the IOC's brand sure is there um is there contact information available that perhaps we could put up on our website for women who would like to contact the ioc 
Well, um, yeah, I mean, well, I guess I could send it to you because it's just the IOC um, basic contact that you go through the International Olympic Committee website. Sure. Right? Okay. But we've had athletes write letters. We um, have had, you know, um, Fair Play for Women in the UK that has been really strongly um, lobbying on behalf of all of the women in sport across the world. And they, they've been very powerful, a very powerful voice. So Fair Play for Women. And um, what what's astonishes me is that we have had zero zero feedback from the IOC zero not even an acknowledgement no no nothing and and so like for me I spend my little days between training sessions just putting out little chirps and tweets and twitter things saying please IOC look at this would you consider this like I keep trying to use the hashtag IOC and save Tokyo 2020 just to keep the drumbeat going so they don't ignore it because it's easy for them to just procrastinate into disaster mm-hmm. unless they're going to outright suspend their policy and they're going to say, and I think the last, the last possible moment for them to say anything about suspending the policy might be December, 2019, this coming December, or maybe the first month, January, 2020, because after that, the policy has to be established like that. You can't just change the policy at the last minute for an Olympic Games. So usually these things come out in the December or the January, you know, of the year leading up to the Olympics. Sure. So we don't have a lot of time. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll try to put the information up so that's okay. available to everyone. And yeah. it looks like we're just starting to run a little short on time. Is there anything okay. else that you, you would like to talk about in I the next elaborate on just that this is only the beginning of transgender men in women's sports and we you can't remove the y chromosome and that programs how men's bodies work and we need to draw a bright line before we open floodgates because it's going to be too hard to take back and we're seeing men taking women's trophies away just this weekend even a man won and set women's world records in a powerlifting federation. Wow. That's incredible. And did this person have a history of of competing well as as a man or did they just sort of show up out of nowhere and sweep the field? It's kind of a, a typical, they do mediocre as a man and transition and of course have a leg up on women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I can, uh, I mean, it's, it, it, there's thousands of athletes that, you know, that be male, like a, like a guy who won't even make a finals in track and field and they could totally beat the best woman in the world on any given event. Mm-hmm. We just need a chance to be heard. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, and and it's important. Can I just add one last thing? Yeah. If the IOC would suspend it, like everything stems from this, because if the IOC would suspend their policy, there would be a cascading effect that it would help people like me on the ground to have a lot stronger voice to resist this. Because then we would say, well, the IOC suspended it. We're not going to implement here. But if the IOC lets it go ahead, then I would still be careful with my own people and our own policies on the ground. But it would be a lot harder to say, look, let them do what they want to do internationally, but we've got to be fair to our girls and our boys in these clubs. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So they are the preeminent sport governing body in the world. And it does really matter what they do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a challenge to every woman who's listening here today to jump on the internet and to contact them and let them know yeah. how you feel about Please this do. because it, it is important. Yeah. Yeah. It is really important. Together we can do so much, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. You are listening to WLRN brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's Women's Liberation Liberation Radio Radio News. News. Now that it's spring and the weather is nicer, I've been riding my bike to work taking the lakeshore bike path that goes through the University of Wisconsin campus. On a couple of occasions, the women's rowing team has been getting boats out of the boathouse and onto the lake as I bike by. I've enjoyed hearing only women's voices at that point in my ride including the voice of the coach in the megaphone shouting out words of encouragement and direction to the synchronized rowers in the boats on the lake. What a wonderful thing to have women working together as a team, using their bodies to propel a watercraft gracefully and swiftly across the water. What would this world be like without women's sports? Are women's sports still women's sports when men are allowed to be on women's teams or allowed to compete with women? How do policies of trans inclusion harm the rights and protections of girls and women involved in sports? I am struck by the physical nature of the feeling I get when I see all of those young women working together in the boat on the lake. I can feel the workings of muscles in my own legs and arms as I watch them propel themselves together as a team. There is something we hold in common in our women's bodies. Femaleness is not just about our reproductive capabilities. It is in the size of our hands, the extra layer of fat just beneath our skin, our bone structure, and in our voices. We have the right to group ourselves together based on this physical reality for the purpose of engaging our bodies in competition or team sports. Why do we have this right? Because we have the right to bond with like-bodied athletes in order to feel ourselves as female and to achieve our potential in sports. There is something beautiful about grouping ourselves together to form an all-female team 
or all-female sports competition. It is not just about fairness. It is about bonding and pride in our bodies as ourselves. Men have the chance to do male bonding things all of the time in public, not just in sports, but in daily life. There have been so many times I have seen men bonding with each other in their maleness at bars as they talk to women or among themselves, on sports teams such as football teams and in soccer, in business meetings, at church, on the movie screen, and basically in every part of public life. If men are afforded this right to bond as a sex, frequently in ways that subordinate and render women, quote, inferior, then why is the bonding of girls and women together as a sex under fire, as we see in this new attack on women's sports? I did a little research for this piece, and it turns out girls did not even hardly have sports teams in the public schools until after Title IX was passed in 1972. Even with the passage of Title IX, which guarantees equal opportunities for sports participation for girls, a 2017 study by the U.S. Government Accountability Office found that girls' participation had not reached parity with boys. What this means is that even with Title IX in place, female teenage athletes in the public schools are not participating at the same rate in sports as male athletes. Now that the laws and policies are changing again, even before parity is achieved, how will this new era of trans inclusion, i.e. of males in female sports, impact progress in parity? The answer can be found in the experiences cropping up in public schools this year in a variety of sports events. In Connecticut, there is now the well-publicized advent of boys winning a girls' track event and being rewarded with, quote, courage awards for their participation. According to the site transathlete.com, 17 states including Colorado, New Jersey, Florida, and Minnesota have transgender inclusion policies that do not require surgeries or hormone treatments for boys to be counted as girls in girls' sports. Not that puberty blockers, synthetic hormones, or surgeries can or will ever add up to making someone the opposite sex, but at least requiring a certain amount of those actions makes it more difficult for boys to be counted as girls and vice versa. With this kind of policy becoming predominant in 2019, it is likely we will see more cases like the case of the two boys in Connecticut who just won first and second place in track events in February at a state indoor track meet. Both Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller, the first and second place winners of the event, are trans-identified males. How does this make the girls competing against Yearwood and Miller feel? What sort of implications for sports scholarships onto college and university teams does this new phenomenon of trans-inclusion in girls' sports create? Will boys be taking away opportunities for female athletes by virtue of these new policies? All indicators point to yes. And that means not only do we need to fight to keep Title IX protections in place, but we need to fight against these new policies that count boys as girls using the vague concept of, quote, gender identity. A new term that means you can be counted as the opposite sex if you say that you feel you are the opposite sex 
even though you have no sex characteristics of the sex you are claiming to be. Women are amazing. When we get together in our all-female music ensembles, the music is qualitatively different than all-male ensembles. This does not mean that women's music is better or worse than men's music, just that it is different and that it has the right to be, the right to exist without male intervention. The same holds true for girls and women's sports. I'm not interested in arguing that girls' and women's anatomy and physical makeup is, quote, weaker than male anatomy and physicality. I am interested in arguing that it is different, which means we need to have different guideposts and challenges for our female athletes than we do for our male athletes. We need to keep girls' and women's sports separate from boys' and men's sports in order to see the true quality of our athletes and what they are capable of doing when given the opportunity. There is a big difference between the words segregation and separatism when looking at the social implications of those terms. Segregation is often used to point out the unfair treatment of blacks under Jim Crow laws and was the idea of whites and enforced by whites to keep blacks out of whites only spaces. Separatism is when members of the oppressed class decide to remove themselves from spaces where the oppressor class has power over them. Employing separatism to women's sports, women's cultural events, or women's facilities such as changing rooms, locker rooms, prisons, and homeless shelters is not an act of discrimination against men. It is an act of separation because the world is male-dominated, and women need our own institutions and spaces to recover from male domination. This applies as much to sports as it does to any aspect of women's organizing, safety, and culture. Thanks for listening to WLRN's 37th edition podcast on women's sports. We'd like to thank our guests, Coach Linda Blade and Beth Seltzer, for granting us interviews. Next month, we'll explore the erosion of abortion rights and access as it is playing out in the U.S. and around the world. That program will be available on Thursday, June 6th. I'm Robin Long. Thanks for staying tuned to WLRN. Thanks for all of your support. We could not do this collective radio work without you. We are you and you are us. If you'd like to join our team of volunteer journalists, We need help with interviews, editing, writing, and delivering the world news, or any number of tasks that keep us airborne. Just go to the WLRN WordPress site and click on the Volunteer for WLRN tab. While you're there, consider becoming a listener sponsor. It's easy. Just click on the Donate button and then check the box that says you'd like a monthly donation withdrawn automatically from your account. If everyone listening to this right now donated just $5 a month, pretty soon we'd be as big as Democracy Now! or NPR. But in all seriousness, your donations help us to travel to festivals and events, to table, and to reach more and more listeners. I'm Thistle Pedersen, signing off for now. Thanks for staying tuned to WLRN. Thanks for tuning in to WLRN's 37th edition on women's sports. I'm Jenna DeQuarto, WLRN's sound engineer and producer. Today's podcast was produced by yours truly with tender loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide.
Until next time, stay strong. This is Sekhmet She-Owl signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, SoundCloud, and Spotify, in addition to our WordPress site. Thanks for listening. Patriarchal kiss. How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that, where is home? Tell me, where is my home? Cause gender hurts.